You're listening to ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Science has cut through the forefront of virology. How much do we know today? And what have we learned from the epidemiology of AIDS and HIV? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Sachs. Dr. Sachs is Clinical Director of the HIV Program and the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He has taught at Harvard Medical School for more than 14 years, and he is currently an Associate Professor of Medicine there. He has been a member of the AIDS Clinical Care Editorial Board since 1996, and he's been Editor-in-Chief since 2003. Today we are discussing the epidemiology of HIV disease, changes in the patterns and trends. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Sachs. Thank you for inviting me. From an epidemiological perspective, what is the difference between HIV and AIDS? HIV infection just is the overall population that has the virus, whereas AIDS really represents the more severe immunodeficiency and the complications. It was kind of an artificial construct because initially in the early 1980s when AIDS was first recognized, HIV hadn't been discovered yet. So there's actually a movement afoot to make HIV infection reportable as well as AIDS. Right now in the United States, only AIDS is reportable in all 50 states. There are about 30 states that require HIV infection to be reported as well. But there is a real strong push from the Centers for Disease Control and the federal government to get all HIV infection reported as well. From a mere epidemiologic standpoint, it certainly makes sense to count HIV infections as well as AIDS cases. How many cases of AIDS in the United States have been reported since the start of the epidemic in 1981, and how many deaths? There have been approximately 1 million cases of AIDS reported to the CDC. 500,000 deaths or so, and that number has declined substantially since the the number per year since since the mid-1990s. Now, with anyone's guess how many HIV infections have taken place since then, we have an estimate on the number of people living with HIV in the United States that's about 1.1 million, so a million 100,000. But again, that's more of an estimate since not everybody with HIV infection has been tested, and even if people are tested, not all states require HIV to be reported. What are the numbers doing in 2005? Are they plateauing? Well, we have actually seen over the past four or five years a disturbing increase in the number of AIDS cases. So as I mentioned, they declined substantially per year starting in the mid-1990s. It really plummeted, and it was so exciting and so gratifying because treatments were so effective. And they leveled off at around 40,000 per year. And then back in uh, sort of 2000, 2001, slowly began to increase. And now uh, in the past year, there were 45,000 cases. Whether this represents the start of another large increase or whether this is just a statistical anomaly is still not clear, but it's something that's very concerning and is being watched closely by the statisticians and the epidemiologists at the CDC. In 2007, what are the major risk factors and what puts these people at risk? Because I'm sure this has changed from what we remember from the 80s. Well, in some ways it has changed and in some ways it hasn't. In the United States, about three-quarters of people living with HIV are men. And the major risk factor among men is still men who have sex with men. And um, they account for about three-quarters of the cases among men. The remainder are infected either from injection drug use or by heterosexual contact. Among the cases that are occurring in women, the remainder, 75% of women are infected by heterosexual contact. 
from a partner who is either known or not known to be HIV infected. And then again, about uh, half of the remainder are infected through injection drug use. Injection drug use in the United States, fortunately, has become a diminishing uh, source of HIV infections in the United States. One area that's increasing is people moving here from highly endemic areas, such as uh, sub-Saharan Africa or the Caribbean. And, and of course, those parts of the world, in particular sub-Saharan Africa, are the epicenter of the AIDS epidemic internationally. What have we learned about OIs, opportunistic infections, and risk groups? And why is KS, Kaposi's sarcoma, decreasing? Well, Kaposi's sarcoma is a cancer that's caused by a virus. It's caused by the virus, human herpes virus 8. Even before we had effective HIV therapeutics, there was a decline in the incidence of Kaposi's sarcoma. And that was largely linked, we believe, to a reduction of high-risk sexual behavior among gay men. And so there were fewer gay men with the combination of HIV plus this HHV-8. Then, with effective antiretroviral therapy, you have a reduction in the number of people with severe immunodeficiency. And so the combination of those two factors has led to a marked reduction in the incidence of Kaposi's sarcoma. In fact, if you look at all of the opportunistic infections, in particular the ones that were represented by the most severe immunodeficiency, such as cytomegalovirus or disseminated mycobacterium avium disease, they really have practically disappeared in people who are effectively treated. The biggest risk for getting an opportunistic infection in 2007 is not being aware of your HIV status, which is one reason why the revised HIV testing guidelines are so important. About 50% of people diagnosed with HIV infection in the United States are diagnosed within one year of getting an AIDS diagnosis, meaning they're getting an AIDS diagnosis right then and there at the first time they're getting tested or one year either side of that test. So it's really a, a, pretty, a pretty distressing testament to the fact that many people are being tested too late. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Sachs, Clinical Director of the HIV Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and we're discussing the changing epidemiology of HIV disease over 25 years. A scientist by the name of Peter Duesberg out of Berkeley was responsible at the time for kind of challenging the consensus that HIV caused AIDS. What can you say today about his work and his thinking? It's hard to say anything good about it. Uh, it's really a pretty scandalous that a person of his scientific reputation should be allowed to continue to spread such misinformation. And he had quite a reputation, correct? Yes, he does. And, and as with any controversial disease or any serious disease, they're going to be denialists, and he has led the charge. And unfortunately, this has led many people to kind of steer clear of HIV treatment, which can be so life-saving, and has had a particularly bad effect in the country that is most hard hit with HIV in the world, and that's mm-hmm. South Africa. Mm-hmm. I would say that he's producing irresponsible scientific claims that are harming potentially the lives of millions of people. If I could just say that, that his comment that since not everyone with HIV gets sick uh, is proof that HIV doesn't cause AIDS makes no more sense than someone coming to you and saying, you know, my Aunt Sadie smoked for 40 years and she never got sick, therefore smoking isn't bad for you. It, it has that level of 
scientific evidence behind it. What interventions prevent HIV infection? What works? What do we know today that works and what doesn't? Well, some things have worked spectacularly well. Screening the blood supply, which was the first use of the HIV antibody test, has led to a marked reduction in the risk of HIV-related blood transfusions. It's estimated that it was as high as one out of 100 units transfused in the 1980s. And now it's estimated to be about one out of every two million units today. So, so an episode of HIV by blood transfusion is pretty much unheard of. Also, prevention of mother-to-child transmission has been an incredible success story. Without any HIV treatment, about one out of three babies born to an HIV-positive mother will get HIV him or herself. This can be almost completely prevented by administering antiretroviral therapy to the mothers and to the newborns at the time of delivery. Another thing that's worked quite well, we think, is the administration of post-exposure prophylaxis after occupational injuries. Although the risk was always low, uh, a needle stick from an HIV-infected person carried a risk of about 1 out of 250 in transmitting to the healthcare provider. We now give a period of antiviral therapy to the healthcare provider, and we believe we are able to reduce that risk further. Finally, it's known that people who find out their HIV status are going to reduce their high-risk sexual behavior, and that's another area that works well. The major thing that they do, at least when they're men, is they use male latex condoms. There's clear evidence that regular use of latex condoms reduces the risk of HIV transmission. Let me give you a scenario. A physician is working in an ER, and uh, he is stuck by a needle one time, and he's exposed to hepatitis C virus. Another physician same period, is stuck by a needle and he's exposed to HIV. Other factors being equal, who's got the greatest risk of developing the disease? Hepatitis C is about 10 times more transmissible from a needle stick than HIV. So one way of remembering this is the so-called rule of threes, where if you are exposed to a source patient who has hepatitis B infection, chronic hepatitis B infection, the risk of transmission can be as high as 30%. That's assuming that a person has not been vaccinated. If one's exposed to hepatitis C-infected blood through a needle stick, the risk is 3%, whereas if one is exposed to an HIV-positive person's blood, the risk is 0.3%. Now, obviously, there's very wide ranges around these estimates, and one can intervene in some of these diseases to prevent it. I've already discussed how you can intervene with post-exposure prophylaxis and with hepatitis B with vaccination. Unfortunately for hepatitis C, there is no intervention that can prevent hepatitis C transmission after a needle stick, Um, and, and so that is an area of active research. Another area that I I would like to mention is that sharp devices, needles, disposal devices, et cetera, have become much safer since the uh, AIDS epidemic began in the 1980s. What can you say about male circumcision and its relation to HIV disease? So male circumcision does appear to work in sub-Saharan Africa. There have been three separate studies showing that the risk of men acquiring HIV is reduced by about 50% for those men who undergo circumcision. And these are prospective randomized studies, the highest level of evidence we have. I just want to say that if we had an HIV vaccine that was this effective, it would be universally celebrated. Uh, But obviously, this is a much tougher area. This requires a surgical procedure. It also requires crossing some cultural boundaries. And what are the prospects for an HIV vaccine? HIV vaccine has been a subject of intense research since the virus was first discovered in the early 1980s. 
I should say that there are a lot of very smart people working on it and a lot of money being put into the effort. Unfortunately, because of the fact that the virus targets the immune system and has such mutability, it has turned out to be a much more challenging problem than originally anticipated. So I think it is unlikely that we are going to see an effective AIDS vaccine anytime within the next five years. However, there are many clinical studies going on and it is possible that the first thing we'll see will be either a partially effective vaccine or potentially a vaccine that if someone acquires HIV, then the disease that they acquire is modulated to be less severe. Very interesting information. Thank you, Dr. Sachs. I want to thank Dr. Paul Sachs, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing the challenging epidemiology of HIV disease in 2007. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Don't go away. We have more great segments coming up.